0: 4. Andy bearing the Fleur de Lis and the Tudor Rose are interesting, and the two silver maces presented by George III bearing the arms of Ryan weighing 962 ounces are said to be the finest in Europe. The chief charm of Rye is to walk along the narrow streets and lanes, and see the picturesque rows and groups of old 15th and 16th century houses with their tiled roofs and gables, whether boarded or tile hung after the manner of Sussex cottages, graceful bay windows altogether pleasing. Wherever one wanders one meets with these charming dwellings, especially in West Street and Pump Street, the oldest house in Rye being at the corner of the churchyard, the Mermaid Inn is delightful both outside and inside, with its low-paneled rooms, immense fireplaces and dog grates, we see the monogram and names and dates carved on the stone fireplaces, 1643, 1646, the name Lawful Holt seeming to indicate some foreign refugee or settler, It is pleasant to find at least in one town in England so much that has been left and altered and so little spoiled. Chapter ID In streets and lanes I have said in another place that no country in the world can boast of possessing rural homes and villages which have half the charm and picturesqueness of our English cottages and hamlets. They have to be known in order that they may be loved. The hasty visitor may pass them by and miss half their attractiveness. They have to be rude in varying moods in order that they may display their charms when the blossoms are bright in the village orchards, when the sun shines on the streams and pools and gleams on the glories of old thatch, when autumn has tinged the trees with golden tints, or when the hoar frost makes their bare branches beautiful again with new and glistening foliage, not even in their summer garb do they look more beautiful. There is a sense of stability and a wondrous variety caused by the different nature of the materials used the peculiar stone indigenous in various districts and the individuality stamped upon them by traditional modes of building, the charm of the English village Gatsford. We have still a large number of examples of the humbler kind of ancient domestic architecture, but every year sees the destruction of several of these old buildings, which a little care and judicious restoration might have saved. Ruskin's words should be written bold, big letters at the head of the bylaws of every district council. Watch an old building with anxious care, guard it as best you may, and at any cost, from any influence of dilapidation. Count its stones as you would the jewels of a crown. Set watchers about it, as if at the gate of a besieged city. Bind it together with iron when it loosens. Stay it with timber when it declines. Do not care about the unsightliness of the aid better a crutch than a lost limb, and do this tenderly and reverently and continually. And many a generation will still be born and pass away beneath its shadow. If this sound advice had been universally taken many a beautiful old cottage would have been spared to us, and our eyes would not be offended by the wondrous creations of the estate agents and local builders, who had no other ambition but to build cheaply. The contrast between the new and the old is indeed deplorable. The old cottage is a thing of beauty, it's odd, irregular form and various harmonious coloring, the effects of weather, time, and accident environ with smiling verdure and sweet old-fashioned garden flowers its thatched roof high gabled front inviting porch overgrown with creepers and casement windows all combined to form a fair and beautiful home and then look at the modern cottage with its glaring brick walls slate roof and gamely stunted chimney and note the difference usually these modern cottages are built in a row each one exactly like its fellow with door and window frames exactly alike brought over ready made from norway or sweden the walls are thin and the winds of winter blow through them piteously. and if a man and his wife should unfortunately have words the pleasing country euphemism for a violent quarrel all their neighbors can hear them the scenery is utterly spoiled by these ugly eyesores villas at hindhead seem to have broken out upon the once majestic hill like a red skin eruption the jerry built villa is invading our heaths and pine woods every street in our towns is undergoing improvement we are covering whole counties with houses. In Lancashire no sooner does one village end its mean streets than another begins. London is ever enlarging itself. Extending its great maw over all the country round. The Ref. Canon Erskine Clark. Vicar of Battersea. When he first came to a reside near Clapham Junction. Remembers the green fields and quiet lanes with trees on each side that are now built over. The street leading from the station line with shops 40 years ago had hedges and trees on each side. There were great houses situated in beautiful gardens and parks wherein resided some of the great city merchants, county families, the leaders in old days of the influential Clapham sect. These gardens and parks have been covered with streets and rows of cottages and villas, some of the great houses have been pulled down and others turned into schools or hospitals, valued only at the rent of the land on which they stand. All this is inevitable. You cannot stop all this any more than Mrs. Partington could stem the Atlantic tide with a housemaid's mop. But ere the flood has quite swallowed up all that remains of England's natural and architectural beauties, it may be full to glance at some of the buildings that remain in town and country ere they have quite vanished. Beneath the shade of the lordly castle of Warwick, which has played such an important part in the history of England, the town of Warwick sprang into existence seeking protection in lawless times from its strong walls and powerful garrison through its streets often rode in state the proud rulers of the castle with their men at arms the beauchamps the Nevilles, including the great kinmaker richard needle the dudleys and the gribbles they contributed to the building of their noble castle protected the town and were born to their last resting place in the fine church where their tombs remain the town has many relics of its lords and possesses many half-timbered graceful houses, Mill Street is one of the most picturesque groups of old-time dwellings, a picture that lingers in our minds long after we have left the town and fortress of the grim old Earls of Warwick, Oxford is a unique city, there is no place like it in the world, scholars of Cambridge, of course, will tell me that I am wrong, and that the town on the Cam is a far superior place, and then point triumphantly to the backs, yes, they are very beautiful. But as a loyal son of Oxford I may be allowed to prefer that stately city with its towers and spires, its wealth of college buildings, its exquisite architecture unrivaled in the world, nor is the new unworthy of the old. The buildings at Magdalen, that brazen owes, and even the new schools harmonize not unseemly with the ancient structures. Happily Keble is far removed from the heart of the city, so that that somewhat unsatisfactory and successful pile of brickwork interferes not with its joy. In the streets and lanes of modern Oxford we can search for and discover many types of old-fashioned, humble specimens of domestic art. And we give as an illustration some houses which date back to Tudor times, but have, alas, been recently demolished. Many conjectures have been made as to the reason why our forefathers preferred to rear their houses with the upper stories projecting out into the streets. We can understand that in towns where space was limited it would be an advantage to increase the size of the upper rooms if one did not object to the lack of air in the narrow street and the absence of sunlight. But we find these same projecting stories in the depth of the country, where there could have been no restriction as to the ground to be occupied by the house. Possibly the fashion was first established of necessity in towns, and the traditional mode of building was continued in the country. Some say that by this means our ancestors tried to protect the lower part of the house. The Foundations from the influence of the weather, others with some ingenuity suggest that these projecting stories were intended to form a covered walk for passengers in the streets, and to protect them from the showers of slops which the careless housewife of Elizabethan times cast recklessly from the upstairs windows. Architects tell us that it was purely a matter of construction. Our forefathers used to place four strong corner posts, framed from the trunks of oak trees, firmly sunk into the ground with their roots left on and placed upward the roots curving outwards so as to form supports for the upper stories. These curved parts, and often the posts also, were often elaborately carved and ornament, as in the example which our artist gives us of a corner post of a house in its which, in the charm of the English village I have tried to describe the methods of the construction of these timber framed houses, and it is perhaps unnecessary for me to repeat what is there recorded. In fact, there were three types of these dwelling places. To which have been given the names post and fan, transom framed, and interde work. In judging of the age of a house, it will be remembered that the nearer together the upright posts are placed, the older the houses. The builders, as time went on, obtained greater confidence, set their posts wider apart, and held them together by transoms. The charm of the English village. Pages 57. Surrey is a county of good cottages and farmhouses and these have had their chroniclers in Miss Gertrude Jekyll's delightful Old West Surrey and in the more technical work of Mr. Ralph Neville, F.S.A., the numerous works on cottage and farmhouse building published by Mr. Batsford illustrate the variety of styles that prevailed in different counties, and which are mainly attributable to the variety in the local materials in the counties, thus in the Copswolds, Northamptonshire, Derbyshire, Yorkshire, Westmoreland, Somersetshire, And elsewhere there is good building stone, and there we find charming examples of stone-built cottages and farmhouses, altogether satisfying. In several counties where there is little stone and large forests of timber we find the timber framed dwelling flourishing in all its native beauty. In Surrey there are several materials for building, hence there is a charming diversity of domiciles. Even the same building sometimes shows walls of stone and brick, half timber and plaster, half timber and tile hanging. Half timber with panels filled with red brick, and roofs of thatch or tiles, or stone slates which the Horsham Quarry supplied. These Surrey cottages had changed with age, originally they were built with timber frames, the panels being filled in with wall and daub, but the storms of many winters had had their effect upon the structure. Rain drove through the walls, especially when the ends of the wall rotted a little, and draughts were strong enough to blow out the rush lights and to make the house very uncomfortable. Oak timbers often shrink, hence the joints came apart, and being exposed to the weather became decayed, in consequence of this the buildings settled, and new methods had to be devised to make them weatherproof, the villages therefore adopted two or three means in order to attain this end, they plastered the whole surface of the walls on the outside, or they hung them with deal boarding or covered them with tiles, in Surrey tile hung houses are more common than in any other part of the country, this use of weather tiles is not very ancient probably not earlier than 1750, and much of this work was done in that century or early in the 19th. Many of these tile-hung houses are the old 16th-century timber-framed structures in a new shell. Weather tiles are generally flatter and thinner than those used for roofing, and when bedded in mortar make a thoroughly weatherproof wall. Sometimes they are nailed to boarding, but the former plan makes the work more durable. Though the courses are not so regular, these tiles have various shapes of which the commonest is semicircular, resembling a fish scale. The same form with a small square shoulder is very generally used, but there is a great variety, and sometimes those with ornamental ends are blended with plain ones. Age imparts a very beautiful color to old tiles, and when covered with lichen they assume a charming appearance which artists love to depict. The mortar used in these old buildings is very strong and good, in order to strengthen the mortar used in Sussex and Surrey houses and elsewhere. The process of gallating, or garroting, was adopted. The bricklayers used to decorate the rather wide and uneven mortar joint with small pieces of black ironstone stuck into the mortar. Sussex was once famous for its ironwork, and ironstone is found in plenty near the surface of the ground in this district. Gallating, dates back to Jacobean times, and is not to be found in 16th century work. Sussex houses are usually whitewashed and have thatched roofs, except when and slates or tiles are used thatch as a roofing material will soon have altogether vanished with other features of vanishing England. District councils in their bylaws usually insert regulations prohibiting thatch to be used for roofing. This is one of the mysteries of the legislation of district councils. Rules, suitable enough for towns, are applied to the country villages, where they are altogether unsuitable or unnecessary. The danger of fire makes it inadvisable to have thatch roofs in towns or even in some villages where the houses are closed together, but that does not apply to isolated cottages in the country. The district councils do not compel the removal of thatch, but prohibit new cottages from being roofed with that material. Their island however, another cause for the disappearance of thatch roofs, which form such a beautiful feature in the English landscape. Since mowing machines came into general use in the harvest fields the straw is so bruised that it is not fit for thatching at least it is not so suitable as the straw which was cut by the hand. Thatching, too, is almost a lost art in the country. Indeed ricks have to be covered with thatch, but the work for this temporary purpose cannot compare with that of the old roof Thatcher, with his street or frill to hold the loose straw, and his sparse split hazel rods point at each end that with a dexterous twist in the middle make neat pegs for the fastening of the straw rope that he cleverly twists with a simple implement called a limbla. The lowest course was finished with an ornamental bordering of rods with a diagonal criss-cross pattern between, all neatly pegged and held down by the spars. old west surrey, by Gertrude Jekyll. Page 206. Horsham stone makes splendid roofing material. The stone easily flakes into plates like thick slates, and forms large grey flat slabs on which, the weather works like a great artist in harmonies of moss-lichen and stain. No roofing so combines dignity and homeliness. And no roofing except possibly thatch, which, however, is short-lived, so surely passes into the landscape. It is to be regretted that the stone is no longer used for roofing another feature of vanishing England. The stone is somewhat thick and heavy, and modern rafters are not adapted to bear their weight. If you want to have a roof of horsham stone, you can only accomplish your purpose by pulling down an old cottage and carrying off the slabs. Perhaps the small copsewold stone slabs are even more beautiful. Old Lancashire and Yorkshire cottages have heavy stone roofs which somewhat resemble those fashioned with horse and slabs, highways and byways in Sussex. By A.D. Lucas, the builders and masons of our country cottages were cunning men, and adapted their designs to their materials. You will have noticed that the pitch of the horse and slated roof is unusually flat. They observed that when the sides of the roof were deeply sloping, as in the case of thatched roofs, the heavy stone slate strained and dragged at the pegs and laths and fell and injured the roof. Hence they determined to make the slope less steep. Unfortunately the rain did not then easily run off, and in order to prevent the water penetrating into the house they were obliged to adopt additional precautions. Therefore they cemented their roofs and stopped them with mortar. Very lovely are these South Country Cottages. Peaceful. Picturesque. Pleasant. With their graceful gables and jutting eaves. Altogether delightful well sang a loyal Sussex poet, if I ever become a rich man, or if ever I grow to be old, I will build a house with deep thatch to shelter me from the cold, and there shall the Sussex songs be sung and the story of Sussex told, I fear the poet's plans will never be passed by the rural district council, we give some good examples of Surrey cottages at the village of Capel in the neighborhood of Dorking, a charming region for the study of cottage building, there you can see some charming ingle nooks in the interior of the dwellings, and some grand farmhouses. Attached to the inglenook is the oven, wherein bread is baked in the old-fashioned way, and the chimneys are large and carried up above the floor of the first story, so as to form space for curing bacon. horsemonden Count, near Lamberhurst, is beautifully situated among well-wooded scenery, and the farmhouse shown in the illustration is a good example of the pleasant dwellings to be found therein. East Anglia has no good building stone and brick and flint are the principal materials used in that region. The houses built of the dark, dull, thin old bricks, not of the great staring modern varieties, are very charming, especially when they are seen against a background of wooded hills. We give an illustration of some cottages at Stolangtoft, Suffolk, the old town of Banbury, celebrated for its cakes, its cross, and its fine lady who rode on a white horse accompanied by the sound of bells has some excellent, black and white, houses with blunt gables and enriched barge boards pierced in every variety of patterns, their finials and pendants, and pargeted fronts, which give an air of picturesqueness contrasting strangely with the stiffness of the modern brick buildings. In one of these is established the old Bambori cake shop. In the high street there is a very perfect example of these Elizabethan houses, erected about the year 1600. It has a fine oak staircase the newels beautifully carved and enriched with pierced finials and pendants. The marketplace has two good specimens of the same date, one of which is probably the front of the Unicorn Inn, and had a fine pair of wooden gates bearing the date 1684, but I am not sure whether they are still there. The reindeer inn is one of the chief architectural attractions of the town. We see the dates 1624 and 1637 inscribed on different parts of the building, but its chief glory is the Globe Room, with a large window rich plaster ceiling, good paneling, elaborately decorated doorways and chimney piece. The courtyard is a fine specimen of 16th century architecture. A curious feature is the mounting block near the large oriel window. It must have been designed not for mounting horses, unless these were of giant size, but for climbing to the top of coaches. The Globe Room is a typical example of vanishing England, as it is reported that the whole building has been sold for transportation to America we give an illustration of some old houses in Paradise Square, that does not belie its name, the houses all round the square are thatched, and the gardens in the centre are a blaze of colour, full of old-fashioned flowers, the King's Head Inn has a good courtyard, Banbury suffered from a disastrous fire in 1628 which destroyed a great part of the town, and called forth a vehement sermon from the ref, William Wiley, of two hours duration, on the depravity of the town which merited such a severe judgment, in spite of the fire much old work survived, and we give an illustration of a Tudor fireplace which you cannot now discover, as it is walled up into the passage of an ironman's shop, the old ports and harbors are always attractive, the old fishermen mending their nets delight to tell their stories of their adventures, and retain their old customs and usages, which are profoundly interesting to the lovers of folklore, their houses are often primitive and quaint, there is the curious fish house at Littleport, Cambridgeshire, with part of it built of stone, having a gable and Tudor weather molding over the windows. The rest of the building was added at a later date. In Upper Deal there is an interesting house which shows Flemish influence in the construction of its picturesque gable and octagonal chimney, and contrasted with it an early 16th century cottage much the worse for wear. We give a sketch of a Portsmouth row which resembles in narrowness those at Yarmouth, and in Crown Street there is a battered Three-gabled, weather-boarded house, which has evidently seen better days. There is a fine canopy over the front door of Buckingham House, wherein George Villiers, Duke of Buckingham, was assassinated by John Felton on August 23, 1628. The Vale of Aylesbury is one of the sweetest and most charmingly characteristic tracts of land in the whole of rural England, abounding with old houses. The whole countryside literally teems with picturesque evidences of the past life and history of England. Ancient landmarks and associations are so numerous that it is difficult to mention a few without seeming to ignore unfairly their equally interesting neighbors. Let us take the London Road, which enters the Shire from Middlesex and makes for Aylesbury, a meandering road with patches of scenery strongly suggestive of Burkitt Foster's landscapes. Down a turning at the foot of the lovely Chiltern Hills lies the secluded village of Calfon Street Giles. Here Milton, the poet. Sought refuge from plague-stricken London among a colony of fellow Quakers, and here remains, in a very perfect state, the cottage in which he lived and was visited by Andrew Marvel. It is said that his neighbor Elwood, one of the Quaker fraternity, suggested the idea of Paradise Regained, and that the draft of the latter poem was written upon a great oak table which may be seen in one of the low-pitched rooms on the ground floor. I fancy that Milton must have beautified and repaired the cottage at the period of his tenancy the mantelpiece with its classic OG molding belongs certainly to his day, and some other minor details may also be noticed which support this inference, it is not difficult to imagine that one who was accustomed to metropolitan comforts would be dissatisfied with the open hearth common to country cottages of that poet's time, and have it enclosed in the manner in which we now see it, outside the garden is brilliant with old-fashioned flowers, such as the poet loved, a stone scutcheon may be seen peeping through the shrubbery which covers the front of the cottage, but the arms which it displays are those of the Fleetwoods, one-time owners of these tenements. Between the year 1709 and 1807 the house was used as an inn. Milton's Cottage is one of our national treasures, which though not actually belonging to the nation has successfully resisted purchase by our American cousins and transportation across the Atlantic. The entrance to the churchyard in Calphone Street Giles is through a wonderfully picturesque turnstile or like gate under an ancient house in the high street. The gate formerly closed itself mechanically by means of a pulley to which was attached a heavy weight. Unfortunately this weight was not boxed in as in the somewhat similar example at Hayes. In Middlesex and an accident which happened to some children resulted in its removal. A good many picturesque old houses remain in the village. Among them being one called Stonewall Farm a structure of the 15th century with an original billet-molded porch and gothic barge boards, there is a certain similarity about the villages that dot the Vale of Aylesbury. The old market house is usually a feature of the high street where it has not been spoiled as at one Groups of picturesque timber cottages, thickest round the church, and shouldered here and there by their more respectable and severe Georgian brethren, are common to all, and vary but little in their general aspect and colouring. Memories and legends haunt every hamlet, the very names of which had an ancient sound carrying us vaguely back to former days. Prince's Risborough, once a manor of the Black Prince, Wendoffer, the birthplace of Roger of Wendoffer, the medieval historian, and author of the Chronicle Flores Historiarum, or History of the World from the Creation to the Year 1235, in modern language a somewhat large order, Hampton, identified to all time with the patriot of that name and so on indefinitely. That monk's Risborough, another hamlet with an ancient-sounding name, but possessing no special history, is a church of the perpendicular period containing some features of exceptional interest, and internally one of the most charmingly picturesque of its kind. The carved tie beams of the porch with their masks and tracery and the great stone stoop which appears in one corner have an unrestored appearance which is quite delightful in these days of over-restoration. The massive oak door has some curious iron fittings, and the interior of the church itself displays such treasures as a magnificent early Tudor roof and an elegant 15th-century chancel screen, on the latter of which some remains of ancient painting exist. The roof loft has unfortunately disappeared. Tame, just across the Oxfordshire border, is another town of the greatest interest. The noble parish church here contains a number of fine brasses and tombs, including the recumbent effigies of Lord John Williams of Tame and his wife, who flourished in the reign of Queen Mary. The chancel screen is of uncommon character, the base being richly decorated with linen paneling, while above rises an arcade in which Gothic form mingles freely with the grotesqueness of the Renaissance. The choir stalls are also lavishly ornamented with the linen fold decoration. The center of Thames Broad High Street is narrowed by an island of houses, once termed middle row, and above the jumble of tiled roofs here rises like a watchtower a most curious and interesting medieval house known as the Birdcage Inn about this structure little is known it island however referred to in an old document as the tenement called the cage demise to james rose by indenture for the term of one hundred years yielding therefore by the year 8s. and appears to have been a farmhouse the document in question is a grant of edward ivy to sir john william of the charity or guild of saint christopher in tame founded by richard quatermain squire who died in the year fourteen sixty this house though in some respects adapted during later years from its original plan, is structurally but little altered, and should be taken in hand and intelligently restored as an object of local attraction and interest, the choicest oaks of a small forest must have supplied its framework, which stands firm as the day when it was built, the fine corner posts now enclosed should be exposed to view, and the mullion windows which jut out over a narrow passage should be opened up. If this could be done and not overdone the birdcage would hardly be surpassed as a miniature specimen of medieval timber architecture in the county. A stone doorway of Gothic form and a kind of armory or safe exist in its cellars. A school was founded at Tame by Lord John Williams, whose recumbent effigy exists in the church. And amongst the students there during the second quarter of the 17th century was Anthony Wood, the Oxford antiquary. Tame about this time was the center of military operations between the king's forces and the rebels, and was continually being beaten up by one side or the other, would, though but a boy at the time, has left on record in his narrative some vivid impressions of the conflicts which he personally witnessed, and which bring the disjointed times before us in a vision of strange and absolute reality, he tells of Colonel Blagg, the governor of Wallingford Castle, who was on a marauding expedition. Being chased through the streets of Tame by Colonel Crawford, who commanded the parliamentary garrison at Aylesbury, and how one man fell from his horse, and the Colonel held a pistol to him, but the trooper cried quarter, and the rebels came up and rifled him and took him and his horse away with them. On another occasion, just as a company of roundhead soldiers were sitting down to dinner, a cavalier force appeared to beat up their quarters, and the roundheads retired in a hurry, leaving A.W. and the schoolboys nurse in the house, to enjoy their venison pasties. He tells also of certain doings at the Nag's Head. A house that still exists a very ancient hostelry, though not nearly so old a building as the Birdcage Inn. The sign is no longer there, but some interesting features remain, among them the huge strapped hinges on the outer door, fashioned at their extremities in the form of fleurs de lis We should like to linger long at Tame and describe the wonders at Tame Park with its remains of a Cistercian Abbey and the fine Tudor buildings of Robert King, last abbot and afterward the first Bishop of Oxford, the three fine oriel windows and stair turret, the noble Gothic dining hall and abbot's parlor panelled with oak in the style of the linen pattern, are some of the finest Tudor work in the country. The prebendal house and chapel built by Grosita are also worthy of the closest attention. The chapel is an architectural gem of early English design and the rest of the house with its later perpendicular windows is admirable. Not far away is the interesting village of Long Crenn, once a market town, with its fine church and its many picturesque houses, including Staple Hall, near the church, with its noble hall, used for more than five centuries as a manorial courthouse on behalf of various lords of the manor, including Queen Katharina, widow of Henry Viet has now fortunately passed into the care of the National Trust and its future is secured for the benefit of the nation. The house is a beautiful half-timbered structure, and was in a terribly dilapidated condition. It is interesting both historically and architecturally, and is noteworthy as illustrating the continuity of English life, that the three-oh.